Welcome to another episode of Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm Sean Rowley, and with me is Derek Specht. Uh, this week we got a couple things to talk about, but I want to start um, with something Derek sent me an email saying, check this out. Now, after we did the Brent run, um, yeah, when we were along the way, people were, you know, saying, we're never going to do anything like this again. <laughs> and then came the Yukon River Quest saying, hey, that sounds cool. And everybody's like, yeah, well, let's all do that. This come from all the people who said they would never do anything like this again. Uh, and the Yukon River Quest is actually it ran last three, week. four times longer, three times longer. It's 734 kilometers, I think. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Um, so this has actually longer and everybody else is already sitting there going, hey, that'd be something cool to do in a couple of years. <laughs> like, Wait a minute. Uh, you guys said no to stuff like this again. And we've got a couple other people that might want to join in as well. It's intriguing. It is. It's intriguing until you get there in the middle of it and times are getting tough and you're going. <laughs> but they have designated rest times and everything. So that's appealing. You know, I have to stop for eight hours here and it's, it's, uh, the whole thing is it's going to be hard work, but, uh, it's a bit more controlled than, uh, the Brent run. Right. Well, that aside, <laughs> I get an email today from Derek for something called the Manicougan Crater in northern Quebec. The Manicougan Crater, uh, the it's a reservoir. Uh, it's a big asteroid or large comet crater that hit Earth about 214 million years ago. If you were to picture a round mountain... And it is surrounded by a moat, a 10 kilometer wide moat. It's a lot of water. That is it. It's a lot of water. 200 kilometers around. <laughs> if, so, <laughs> if you go on Google Maps, just look north of Charlevoix, Quebec, or along that area. Bay Como. Bay Como. Yeah. And uh, so it's just directly north. You, you can't miss it. It's a very obvious, gigantic circle uh, impact crater from... Uh, Millions of years ago. Yeah, 214 million years ago, they figure it was a five kilometer wide asteroid mm -hmm. that hit. Um, just doing some reading on it. Yeah, it's the, the, the lake, I guess, around it, the moat, as I've been calling it, is 10 kilometers wide all it's, around. It's big water. It's yeah. like big lake. The island in the middle is 56 kilometers across. <laughs> Both the lake and the island measure... 2,000 square kilometers. I mean, that, that's, that's a big piece of property. Um, when you're getting into it, you're thinking, well, this must have thrown up a ton of junk into the air way back when and caused some uh, mass extinctions and stuff, but it didn't. Yes, because of the Canadian Shield, I guess, right? Yeah, they're saying it's because, well, they're speculating. Because of the hard... Um, rock underlying the Precambrian Canadian Shield, it absorbed the shock from mm -hmm. this asteroid as waves. And they say that the the way that this moat has formed on the side sort of proves their point that it sort of w was waves that made that as opposed to everything flying up in the atmosphere. Yeah, like the one off of Mexico, Yucatan yeah, Peninsula. Yeah, Yucatan Peninsula, the limestone. The end of the dinosaurs type thing. But that threw so much water and dirt and whatever stuff into the air that yeah. it became like a, a, what do they call it, an extinction event. Yeah, and a global uh, global winter. Mm -hmm. And what, the, so the Yucatan Peninsula, they figure is the largest one. And this crater, this impact, they figure was the third large. Third large. This is a th the, yeah, but it's the largest one visible. Yes, largest visible. Right. Because most and of them are either eroded or so old or ocean or shoreline, whatever. But this here is in hard Precambrian rock, so it stayed solid. It hasn't eroded. Yeah. And, I mean, it does look pretty cool. Um, so I'm thinking if we go along the route of the Brent Run, if you... There's there's a little town, Relais-Gabriel, on, on the east side. You can park there, and then you, you launch. But if, you, if we did... 175 kilometers in 40 hours. And that included portages and mm -hmm. four-hour snooze and stuff like that. I mean, driving from Toronto, 16-hour drive from Toronto. Yep. So you drive 16 hours. You canoe for... Well, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't take you 40 hours to do this. Maybe take you 30, 5. 
You think? (laughs) (laughs) So, so, okay, let's say 40, and then 16 hours back. That's a long weekend. That's a long weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I I, I checked out a couple of um, trip logs for it and stuff like that. Um, But just before I get into that, just south, 60 kilometers south of the, the moat is the Manic 5 Dam. It was made 214 meters high, 1.3 kilometers long atop a canyon of the former Manicougan River during the 60s. Sounds like it's comparable to the Hoover Dam. Like the Hoover Dam sort of mm. thing, yeah. Uh, it was the largest construction site in North America, taking 13,000 workers, 2.2 million cubic meters of concrete. That's a to little build bit of concrete. Thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, quite the, the impressive uh, dam. Hoover Dam was built in the 30s? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, 32 yeah. to 34, 32 to 36. Somewhere in there. Uh, the average lake depth is 85 meters. The maximum depth, 350 meters. Now, you're talking about Manicougan? Manicougan. Talk- yeah, Manicougan. Yeah, yeah. Um, showing that the moat wasn't carved out by How rivers. How deep is the water? Anywhere from, eight, the average is 85 meters. 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 Down to 350 meters. It's a thousand feet deep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Third of a, third of a, a kilometer deep, right? Huh. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty That's cool. That's some really deep water. So, going through some of the, um, I mean, so yeah, when you, when you look at, when you look at this, the crater itself. You picture, yeah, this mountain in mm-hmm. the middle of a moat. Yes, yes. So you can cut the top off that, put your castle. <laughs> Start your empire in northern yes. Quebec. Um, it's pretty impressive to see it and the fact that you can see it from space. Yes. I mean, they got we've seen pictures there where, you know, from outer space that you can see this massive crater and the, you know, or the mountain and the, and the moat sort of thing. And uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. So I was reading a couple of the um, trip logs and the wind tends and the weather tend to be a factor up there. Yes. Uh, well, it's and, and big it really, water, right? Yeah. It's big water. So 10 kilometers wide, that's enough. That's a big lake on its own, but that's 10 kilometers wide. You're talking like 50 kilometer reaches of water, 50, 60 kilometers. Each way. Each way. Yeah. So it's, this is... A lot of room for waves to be churned up. So you can see how, and I think they recommend that people use kayaks. Well, that's what the one guy had said. Um, sea kayaks were better than canoes because because of the waves and yeah. the wind and stuff like that. So and just reading through some of this, and I, th- I think, yeah, I don't think this would be a trip for canoes. No. Unless I you think, have splash covers or what are the yeah, skirts? Yeah, the skirts splash and all skirts. that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, if you've got that, yeah, yeah, I, I guess yeah, you're good for that. But if you have a kayak and you're looking to use it for something different and you're looking to do a trip, mm-hmm. absolutely, this, this sounds right up your alley. I think the water is going to be very cold. You probably have to have dry suits. It's yeah. at the same latitude as Mooseney and Moose Factory, which is on the base of Hudson Bay. Yeah, up in James Bay. James yeah. Bay. So it's uh, it's not something to be taken lightly because the the big water and the cold and the cold water and the wind and wind is just there's there's a few risks that you'd have to take into account to be cautious about. Well, and the one guy was was talking about the trip that he did. He says, when you look at it from up above, yeah, it's circular. It's a round lake, mm-hmm. but it is so big when you're on the water. You have no idea you're going in a circle. You miss your perspective. Just like you, you really can't do, tell the earth is round when you're paddling yeah, on the water. It, he says you're going straight. You're constantly going straight because it just stretches that far out mm-hmm. ahead of you. And it's so big that you can't tell you're going in a circle. Which leads me to believe if you ever want to kidnap somebody <laughs> <laughs> and put them somewhere and say, just head that way. And you'll yeah. come to civilization. Follow this river. <laughs> and eventually, the, they, they might catch on that they, I've seen this before. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, and he was saying that they just did straight trajectories connecting capes and islands yeah. and, and stuff like that, right? Like the points of land and stuff. And um, 
You, you, it is so big that you can't notice that you're going in a circle. Yeah. Didn't see bears. He saw some tracks and uh, moose tracks and stuff like that. But what they did see, black flies. Yes. Lots of black flies. I had um, read that. Yeah. Now you said you read something about they're pretty much DEET resistant. Yes, there's, there's from what I was reading that they're just so thick. It was uh, I was reading a different trip log and it was uh, there was people doing a road trip and on motorbike and they say every time they stopped and they were go they went through this uh, relay uh, with this town right. Gabriel, yeah. Relay Gabriel, and uh, they were saying that the bugs in the area were just so bad, and. Uh, in some of the other trip logs of uh, these guys that have done this lake, they're saying that unless you go in like May or late season, which is like uh, September, like when it's cold, anywhere's in between that is going to be, it's it's either cold or it's bug season and then it's cold again. And like you can't even go, like they get, it's so far north that they're getting snow in late September and winter hits late September, October. Yeah, so in any, any October, I mean, we do the, the camping trips in October, the canoe trips in yeah. central Ontario, that's not happening but there. But the latitude is so high that it's just winter hits early, right? Yeah. Um, the one thing that, and they, they, the trip logs, I said, they really wasn't around. Uh, it was more for the traveling, not the, the camping sort of thing. But um, the lake trout, apparently mm -hmm. it is famous for lake trout. I suppose there wouldn't be that many people that would make it up there so that... The, the population could really explode. Yeah, yeah. You have a lot of mature lake trout. And I mean, I've, I've looked at some of the places there that you can go to and the guides will take you on this lake fishing. Mm -hmm. And there's some massive trout in there. Yeah. Good numbers, really abundant. And uh, yeah, I mean, if that's what you're into, then definitely the place for you. So at the end of the day, when I'm sitting here thinking, oh, this would be a pretty cool trip. <laughs> I think... It would be cool to do it and say, yeah, I paddled this, <laughs> but that would be the only thing you think you'd get out of it. Yeah. Um, and you'd definitely, you'd, I, I think it would be worth doing it with, yeah, all the spray skirts on your, on a canoe Absolutely. or get kayaks and do it. Or maybe a houseboat. <laughs> or, <laughs> how are you getting a houseboat up there? <laughs> Sure, you can trade with them. <laughs> you know what? I bet there's houseboats houseboats on that lake. I don't be know. a short season for it, but well, he was saying that he like the couple that I read that said they didn't see a ton of people. No, no. So, well, it's just so isolated, right? Yeah. Like you're talking so far away and so far up there. It definitely has. I mean, if you if you look at the map or you Google it and zoom in, there's a lot of coastline along the island and the outside of the moat. Um, for exploration. Yeah, and also it would add or afford you some protection from wind and waves. So if you skirted the edge, you can be trimming through those some of those little islands just to protect yourself from large water. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, at 10 kilometers across, you don't want to be zipping down the middle of that. No. You want to cruise across once and stay close to the island and mm -hmm. then cruise straight back across a second time yeah. to get out. Um, yeah, that, that'd be a tricky one. But uh, yeah, Manicougan Crater in northern Quebec. Uh, I guess maybe is that northern Quebec? It's sort central? of yeah. I guess it, because Quebec goes so far, far up. up. I guess yeah. it would be more central Quebec. Central it's Quebec. it's south of Labrador City in Labrador, but it's uh, it's quite a ways up into Quebec. Yeah, like I say, find Bay Como uh, on oh, Saint Lawrence River. Yeah, and just go straight north of that. Mm -hmm. um, the three sixty three eighty nine, the highway three eighty nine, or whatever it's called. Uh, is the only road that goes up. There's, yeah, it's the... Up there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the 389 from Bay Como goes straight up. And um, definitely worth a look at it. If you're into the, the exploring and you're into the kayaks, uh, hey, this might be something worth uh, looking into if you're looking for something a little bit different. It wouldn't make the top of my list of, of desired routes, but it's definitely on the list. It was It would be a route that I would be interested in doing someday. I think if you're into doing things like the Brent Run and the Yukon River yeah. Quest and this is, weird things, yeah. this would fit right in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so maybe you'll look into that another day. And uh, speaking of other weird things that we're talking about this week, it seems, just going to take a quick break here. When we come back, 
I want to talk about something other than regular canoes, kayaks, and what we usually talk about. We're going to talk about something a bit different. Are we? We are. You are listening to Paddling Adventures Radio on Reno Viola Outdoors. Do you enjoy getting on the water with a paddle in your hand? If so, this show's for you. Listen to Paddling Adventures Radio every Wednesday at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. and see what's happening in the world of paddle sports. Paddling Adventures Radio. Whether you're close to home or far away, grab a paddle and get on the water. This portion of the show is brought to you by Algonquin Outfitters. Algonquin Outfitters, providing quality Algonquin Park backcountry adventures for the entire family since 1961. Whether you want to get on the water for a day or a week, the friendly staff at Algonquin Outfitters can help you out. Find them online at algonquinoutfitters.com or visit one of their 12 locations. Algonquin Outfitters, your outdoor adventure store, with locations in Algonquin Park, Muskoka, and Halliburton. I came across an ad, uh, which I was going to bring to people's attention, just as a, as a throwing it out there so people know. Voyager Canoes. Uh, we're talking, we, we always talk about kayaks and, you know, canoes for one, two people. But Voyager Canoes. The Canadian Canoe Museum has a 36-foot-long Montreal canoe, which they do tours in on the Trent Severn Waterway. For those of you who are uninitiated in what a Voyager Canoe is, these are... 36 some odd feet these 36 are huge feet. Yeah. canoes and the voyageurs back in the uh, 1700s and so on would uh, they would do their uh, trading routes where they would uh, trade furs and skins and whatever with the natives and these huge canoes they'd be dragging these things across the uh, across the depth of the woods across lakes and, and rivers and they would be bringing the furs and skins back to the Hudson Bay Company up uh, up north. So these are traditional voyager style canoes. They'd be tipped on their side at night and people would sleep under them with just a blanket and whatnot. So these are just these massive traditional canoes from uh, from back in the day. Yeah, they the voyagers, I mean, they'd, they'd start out in Montreal and end up uh, uh, Winnipeg, Thunder Bay. Yeah, exactly. And then yep. head back. Um, and that was what the voyagers did, right? Up through Superior, Lake Superior and everything like that. These are not light canoes. No, these are heavy. Uh, now, they're, the modern day ones, I mean, you can see they're Obviously, the yes. fiberglass yes. and, you know, made to look. But yeah, 36 foot long Montreal canoe. Um, they do tours, the, the Canadian Canoe Museum, do the voyager canoe tours at the Peterborough Lift Lock, uh, which is on the Trent Severn Waterway. Uh, and they do this in partnership with Parks Canada. So you can go up there and do tours uh, in this. You you jump in, no paddling experience necessary. They provide the life jackets and they provide the paddles. And um, basically, they while you're while you're paddling, uh, they tell you stories about the Voyager life and the history of the waterways and how Peterborough Lift Lock was built. Um, and you actually go through the lift lock. So you can see what it's like on the inside uh, and going over, you know, through the lock system itself. Um, so if you're looking for something to do, this goes from Friday, July 1st till Monday, September 5th of their season. We did something like this. We went up to Samuel de Champlain Provincial Park a few years back when the kids were a bit younger. And they actually have one uh, there as well. And... There's usually like 10 people in these things, 10 paddlers plus somebody to steer in the back, right? It's an interesting experience. It really is. Now, the one at Samuel de Champlain Park, um, they, of course, while you're paddling um, out on the on the lake, they're giving you a little history lesson of the area and what the voyageurs did in that area, yes. right? And that's uh, Samuel de Champlain is on the north, uh, north of um, um, Algonquin Park. Uh, but yeah, they do a little thing like that. They also have, because seeing the one here in um, Peterborough got me thinking, okay, well, we did that one. And then I'm just sort of Googling stuff in that and seeing how many of these Voyager canoe tours there are nowadays. 
and it has it's gotten popular. There's one downtown Toronto at the harbor front. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, no paddling experience required. You come on a Friday night for a sunset tour, Saturday Sunday afternoon tours uh, of the Toronto Islands. Um, two and a half hour tours, and you get a little historic Voyager canoe replica and. Uh, carries up to 17 paddlers plus a guide and they give a little you know um little talk on the area and the paddling and they visit Voyager bird life, sanctuary history and exploring lagoons enjoying the island landscape from the water as they say <laughs> and how so long I, is it, about two hours or so yeah two and two and a half hours out of the toronto harbor mm -hmm. and it's got me looking at some other ones now some other ones that are a bit farther afield they've got one out of banff Really? Banff, Alberta, yeah. So you're you're on a big lake in Banff, and you're doing the Voyager to canoe tour. The Voyagers weren't up there. No, but they got a canoe there. <laughs> it's just more along the lines of doing something like this on a lake in the middle of the mountains. <coughs> it's kind of cool. And if you want to go to Kamloops, BC, uh, Sun, <laughs> Sun Peak Resorts, they've got one. Isn't that something? This has become quite popular, doing these tours. Now, most of them aren't, you know, they're like an hour, two, two and a half hour yeah. trips. And, I mean, they're all, you know, historical or... But these are locations that where they never had a history of voyageurs. Yeah, I know. It's not stopping them. <laughs> okay. People, oh, hey, it works. A it big works. canoe, it right? Works. So, <laughs> so to get, you know, like I say, just just seeing that thing uh, at the, the Canoe Museum got me looking... This year, the Yukon River Quest actually had a Voyager canoe oh, uh, category, and there was there was a bunch of these big canoes paddling their way down as a team. Awesome. It's, it's a team, right? Yeah. So they they had them there. One of the groups um, tours that I've actually interesting me is the Rideau Experience Program. Um, the Rideau Round Table has partnered with Paddle Canada and Parks Canada for the last couple of years. And what they do is they do this tour in a 30-foot-4 replica Voyager canoe. There's uh, experienced guides and Voyager costumes, the whole, the whole shebang, right? And the tour lasts all day. Oh, yeah. Now, it's, it's like 700 bucks for two... I think it's two or three of these canoes. So there's a major commitment here. Yeah. But it's a whole day. And it's done exploring the wetlands and the environment, um, historical features along the Rideau River out mm -hmm. of Ottawa. Um, it includes on and off water activities. So you'll get out for a while because you don't want to be sitting in the in this thing all day long. Right? Yeah, it, for something that long, I would definitely want to do some little things in get between. Get out and stretch your legs, yeah. and um, tours can be arranged uh, with involved be going through locks, going through the lock system, right? There's locks on the Rideau. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them should are I actually. Known that? You should have known that. <laughs> um, actually, there's a, there's a few of them, and they actually hire summer students because it's all manual. Oh. They got to go out and they crank the, the locked door closed. Do they wear costumes? Uh, no, they just wear their uniforms. <laughs> They're Parks Canada employees, right? Okay. I thought yeah. I was thinking they'd be dressed as Voyagers or something. No, not on the locks. Um, but these guys are. And they do these... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole educational thing on the Voyagers and the wetlands, like the environment. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole day thing. Now, the main tours are through the Rideau River Migratory Bird Sanctuary in Merrickville, which is the south of Ottawa. Um, and the Smith Falls Swale and uh, associated set of locks down through there. But wherever these big canoes can be trailered to, they yeah. can put mm -hmm. in there, right? And uh, go. But yeah, $700 per day, which includes the use of two 34-foot Voyager canoes and two um, guides to help you out, like to explain what, what's going on, right? Nice. And this is this is actually better than just a quick little jump in, let's paddle for a bit. And yeah. This is way more involved. But I mean, it's it's more than just your regular um, two-person tandem canoe or kayak, right? Yeah. So 
I was looking at, at this sort of thing and I'm wondering what else is out there. Now I know um, Hawaii has the Outriggers. Yes. But I think that's more like, what, six people or something like that? Uh, I'm not sure the number of people. I uh, didn't do my homework as I should have. But, uh, yeah, there's the, the Hawaii. They have the Outrigger canoes and, and whatnot. The Outrigger canoe, if anybody's familiar with it, anybody who's seen the uh, the intro-outro from Hawaii Five-O, the old show or even the new show, it shows them running outriggers down these big waves and whatnot. Anyways, see these outriggers are, they're a very narrow hull, but they call them dual hulled or triple hulled. And what it is, is uh, it's the main hull plus the outrigger. It gives them their extra hull. It gives them their, the stability, right? So th that's just something that I come across when we were looking at different uh, methods of, uh, of paddling, paddle performance. Mm -hmm. But uh, before we leave the Vorger canoe thing, I did have a few things that I wanted to close out that with, uh, like the, uh, I, with, with Toronto, I'm not sure there are seasons, but everybody has about the same price for doing this. So it's like about, I know Toronto is about 24.50. It's on sale this summer. Uh, the, uh, Canoe Museum in Peterborough is selling uh, tickets for $20 per adult, $15 for Utes. And their season runs from July 1st to September 5th. And that's right. to go through the Peterborough lift locks. And, uh, one, and, you know, they do talk about Voyager life, the local history of the canal, of the lift lock. And you do pass through the lock. And uh, one thing that I would add, though, is what's interesting is if you go to the Peter, Peterborough Canoe Museum... There's a Voyager canoe in the museum, and there's a display. And what's interesting about the Peterborough Museum, the canoe museum, is all a lot of their displays are touch and talk. So with most museums, it's like you can't touch anything. But there's a few displays at the uh, Peterborough Canoe Museum where you can actually touch the stuff. And interactive. Inter yeah. Interactive displays. And one of the displays, the Voyager, the Voyager display... You can dress up like a Voyager. They have the old Hudson's Bay jackets and the headscarves and the sock for your head and all whatever, all the yeah. stuff that they did, right? And so you can see the actual layout. They have a Voyager canoe there laying on its sort of on its side, set up for a nighttime scene with all the like these huge bales of whatever of uh, skins or furs and supplies. Uh, and, supplies. Yeah. So you can see how they used to do things. So that whole Voyager thing that whole theme you can follow it from start to finish and you can get a lot of information out of it just by going for example the peterborough Canoe museum or some of the other places that sean you had mentioned like uh, downtown toronto and rideau canal and and whatnot yeah it's it's pretty neat to see i mean if you're interested in the voyageurs i would definitely hit the uh, canoe museum because there is a big, absolutely big thing there that shows you all about it and talks all about it but when you start looking at these big Voyager canoes that are out there. I mean, the the outrigger canoes of Hawaii—that's sort of you need those waves and and yeah, whatnot. It's, I mean, and it's sort of site specific. For uh, those. Not necessarily. No, it's with the outrigger canoe. Like these are—it's uh, a, a lot of Polynesian heritage for these. This is their bread and butter. They go fishing with them, and yeah. and in modern day, they put motors on them. But these outrigger canoes—it's—they're very popular because. Because of the ocean waves, that's how they came up with this outrigger plan because they needed the stability. But these things are popular in Hawaii, Tahiti, Samoa, Maori, uh, New Zealand. They're they're all over the place. You even find them in Puerto Rico and stuff. Yeah, well, that's that's what I mean by site specific. You're not yes. going to find them downtown Toronto. No, you're not. Or no. in Algonquin Park. These are open. <laughs> yeah, these are open ocean canoes. Yeah, and which is hence the design with the outrigger. They, you, you know. Eons ago, they realized that they needed some sort of stability, and you can they even sail these things. So that 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 was what I wanted to mention on the outriggers. But you, well, wanted to mention in, something else. Yeah, all my research I started doing. I actually something else that popped up quite a bit when it comes to larger paddle craft mm -hmm. with multiple people. Dragon boats. Dragon boats. Dragon boat festivals are everywhere these days. <laughs> it has become so popular. There is the Toronto International Dragon Boat Festival. In 1989, it started with 27 teams. 2016, they had 180 to 200 teams with f over 5,000 athletes. 
it's surprisingly popular. And I, I went, until we started reading into it, I had no idea it was so big. I've done dragon boat racing and I've only done it for a little while. It, uh, another thing that didn't stick, but I, it, uh, you need a, it's, you need a very high level of energy output to do dragon boat racing. And I'm a bit on the lazy <laughs> side. So I just wasn't interested. I tried it out in Coburg here on uh, Lake Ontario. Well, there's the Dragon Boat International, or Toronto International Dragon Boat Race, uh, the Ottawa Dragon Boat Festival, Pickering, which is like two minutes down the road, Milton, which is the other side of Toronto. Yeah. Like, they're everywhere now. A lot of them, I do know, are for charitable events and stuff mm -hmm. like that, right? Raise money for and that sort of stuff. Um, in Ottawa, the Tim Hortons Ottawa Dragon Boat Festival, it's a not-for-profit event. Started in '93. Um, in nine, the inaugural event in '94 had 25 teams, and it now boasts over 200 teams in competitive, corporate, and community categories. It's mind blowing, eh? right? So yeah, it's just picking up out of out of everywhere. Uh, so I just did a little bit of research on on all of this, and there is actually Dragon Boat Canada, a federation that governs. It's an official governing body for the sport of dragon boat racing in Canada. And it's recognized internationally. And I've noticed they call this a sport. Which to me, I never thought of dragon boat racing as a sport. Because yeah. I've always seen it from the charitable aspect, right? <laughs> Canada has national teams. <laughs> it's incredible, eh? Like... <laughs> I just like I say, I mean, this just all of this came about just from looking at that Voyager ad for the Canadian Canoe Museum, the mm -hmm. canoe, right? So there's a national team, a premier, a junior, under 24, and senior A, B, and C national teams for dragon boat racing in Canada. Yeah, it's amazing. But wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> International Dragon Boat Federation. Wow. International. So like FIFA, are they uh, scandalized <laughs> yeah. like FIFA? So first, they give it a little thing. They give it a little description of what Dragon Boat is. And they say the Dragon Boat is deeply embedded in China's dragon culture. Each boat having an inortly carved dragon's head at the bow and the tail in the stern. The hull is painted with the dragon's scales and the paddles symbolically represent the claws. Hmm. Um, International Dragon Boat Federation Sport Racing, generally 18 to 20 paddlers per standard size dragon boat, 8 to 10 paddlers in the small boats, plus a drummer and a helm, the guy steering. Traditional festivals, the boat designs and crew numbers can vary from 10 up to 50 or more paddlers, plus, of course, the drummer and helm. Yeah. Could you imagine 50 people paddling together in unison? <laughs> And as I recollect, when I did the dragon boat racing, it uh, you are really in close proximity to all the other yeah. people in the in the uh, dragon boat. So when you're paddling, you have to be you you have to work the timing. And uh, and I remember some of the people telling me that once you get good at it, you instinctually follow the people around you. And but you're I was I was constantly hitting the guy in front of me and the guy behind me and and so. Uh, yeah. They threw you overboard, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> Get rid of these butts. They knew I was trying it out, but uh, the, I could see that they were getting a little ticked. But yeah, it's uh, you really have to you learn your timing yeah. with this thing. And and the uh, you were talking about the steersman. It's a, he's called a sweep or steersman. Yeah, um, yeah. They just call him a helm. Yeah. In, in, the, in the stuff I was reading, but uh, not only are strength, endurance, and skill important, but teamwork and harmony of purpose. Yes. And that's what it is that's, all, that's what I was talking all about. to do, right? Yeah. So in the 70s, the Hong Kong Tourist Association decided to stage an international event. In 76, the first Hong Kong international races took place. And it is an event recognized today by dragon boaters worldwide as the start of the modern era of sport dragon boats racing. 1976. Now, you say the modern era. Yeah. Now, uh, I've got s some information here. It was uh, Dragon Boat Racing took place over 2,000 years yeah. in China. Yeah. 20 centuries. 
It yeah. was part of their religious ceremonies, their folk customs, and it, it, yeah, it all it's revolved ancient. around religious ceremony. Yeah, it's yeah. all very ancient. Yeah. Which is really cool because, like I say, this is everywhere now. Yeah, there's the European Dragon Boat Federation, the International, the Asian Dragon Boat Federations, and the three federations now govern dragon boating as practiced in over sixty countries. It's amazing. Fifty, nearly fifty million participants in China, three hundred thousand in the UK and Europe, uh, including Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Russia. 90,000 in Canada and the USA, and many thousands in Australia, New Zealand, and now spreading through the Caribbean, Africa, and the Pacific Basin. It's, like, gotten huge. It is very huge. It's like, you know, I mean, we, we talk about, oh, yeah, we're going out in our canoe for the weekend, or we're going to go to a solo paddle. But there's all these people getting together, partying, and having these and, massive races. And the dragon boat racing and stuff, it's a way of life for a lot of people. Like, you know, like, uh, I guess uh, canoeing is a way of life for Canadians and stuff. But this is like, this is a weird passion uh, for people to get out in a dragon boat race. It's uh, it's amazing how it took off. And, and you, you look at some of the... Uh, some of the what the world uh, the world championships started in about ninety five, and it's interesting to see that Canada has won it twice. It looks like from the paperwork that I have here. Yeah, and it's uh, where did you say it was being held in this year? I oh. read online it was being held in China again this year in two in two thousand seventeen. Sorry, two thousand seventeen. Mm -hmm. China two thousand seventeen. Yeah, again. Hmm. So, you know, like like I say, I always thought. You know, drag. Oh yeah, this, there are a bunch of people are getting together. They're going to raise money for this, that, or the other thing, and they're going to jump in a big long dragon boat, and yeah. they're going to have a race against a couple others, and it's all for fun. Which they they have categories that are just for fun for people that yeah. are not. But it is massive. <laughs> the amount of people is astounding, and, and it really it really took me by surprise how popular it is and I, I never realized yeah it's some of these things it's how it gets under your radar right yeah i've tried dragon boat racing but i still didn't know it was so huge yeah i had no idea so well now we know and, uh, <laughs> now we know <laughs> so, and now you guys know so yeah. if that's something you guys want to try out there's uh there obviously there's uh dragon boat uh, clubs everywhere you'll be able to find one wherever you are yeah you google it and you'll be dragon boating in no time i tell you it's a uh, it's a fantastic workout and i think that's why a lot of people have gotten into it it's uh, you know that uh, modern times everybody's looking for a way or a means to exercise and, and get out there and do something and this is a huge output of energy when you're dragon boat racing. Just the practices and the serious races, like it's, you can feel it in your stomach, you can feel it in your arms. It, you are pulling hard and you're, this is, it's a very difficult, well, I found it difficult to start, but once you're toned and tuned, it's uh, it's a good workout. And, and the guys that I talk to in Coburg, a lot of them play hockey in the winter and this is how they stay fit throughout the summer for their next hockey season. Wow. Yeah, well, you know what? I think I'm going to stick to my two-man canoe and, and <laughs> me them, too. Because I'm lazy. Sticking all that, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I want to take a break. Yeah, uh, yeah, whenever I want to. So let's take a quick break here, and uh, when we come back, you got a destination you want to talk about. I do. All right. You are listening to Paddling Adventures Radio on Reno Viola Outdoors. Do you enjoy getting on the water with a paddle in your hand? If so, this show's for you. Listen to Paddling Adventures Radio every Wednesday at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. and see what's happening in the world of paddle sports. Paddling Adventures Radio. Whether you're close to home or far away, grab a paddle and get on the water. This portion of the show is brought to you by Algonquin Outfitters. Algonquin Outfitters, providing quality Algonquin Park backcountry adventures for the entire family since 1961. Whether you want to get on the water for a day or a week, the friendly staff at Algonquin Outfitters can help you out. Find them online at algonquinoutfitters.com or visit one of their 12 locations. Algonquin Outfitters, your outdoor adventure store, with locations in Algonquin Park, Muskoka, and Halliburton. So in the past, we've uh, we've mentioned that we, and we, I think we did a couple uh destination discussions in the yes. past haven't we so 
we kind of we're hit and miss on that topic, but uh, we're going to do a destination and try and do a few. In the past, we had discussed the 85 Perfect Adventures, the paddling trip guide that uh, that uh, the Rapid, Rapid Media is going to start outputting out every year. So this is their first one. So we're going to start pulling a few trips from that and and uh, discussing it and sort of and hopefully we're going to keep it related to our own experiences but sometimes we're gonna to have to go outside our experiences and and start discussing dream trips so this week i'm going to talk about the sturgeon river tomogamy the heartland of the of the uh of northern ontario i guess you can call it northern ontario right yeah. more central <clears throat> definitely but uh so this in the tomogamy region there's uh there's four major parks that sort of make up this whole area so there's Lady Evelyn Smoothwater. These the there's the Obabaca River. There's Solace Lands, and there's the Sturgeon River. So all of these parks are combined or are, are interconnected. There's about the the history of this area is huge, and this is this area is one of the most heavily trafficked and canoed and traveled areas for backcountry backwoods canoe and camping. In this area, there's about uh, 2,400 interconnected canoeing network trails, 2,400 kilometers of trails. And uh, this is water and portage and whatnot. And many of these trails are thousands of years old. There's, uh, in some of these locations, they found evidence of native uh, natives using these areas, 6,000 years of evidence and 6,000 years old, some of these sites. Wow. So. The, uh, the a lot of the routes they're called the Nostawagan routes, and this this word Nostawagan is uh, is still used today amongst the natives to discuss and to talk about these routes. Many of the routes have been have been resourced uh, resourced and and uh, brought back into modern usage, but many of them are also either through clear cutting or and uh, and logging have been lost forever. So there's a few that you will never see again, and I've gone up north with uh, with the guys that I canoe with, and we've we've tried to find some of these original routes, and and we were somewhat lucky in locating them and a lot of bushwhacking, but we did find some of the routes that we were looking for that we had uh, researched. That's become a, a thing up that way is the the lost portages. Yes, and. Um, uh, Kevin Callan, he actually wrote a book on Lost Portages of... Yes. What was it called? Lost Portages of Ontario or something? Of Ontario. Yeah. I'm sure that was what it was, yeah. Something like that. So anyways, I'm just going to briefly talk about this this area and these routes in uh, in northern Ontario. It's north of Sudbury, northeast of Sudbury. It's a large area of parks. There's a huge area of parks that have been set aside and a lot of them are traditionally logged but now have become park and just to protect the the waterways and the rivers in that area from further logging. So uh, the Sort of the crown jewel, the upper end of it is the uh, Lady Evelyn Smoothwater, and in Lady Evelyn Smoothwater, right where the Lady Evelyn uh, River co uh, courses through, there's some of the highest points in Ontario, and the highest point is uh, just off of Scarecrow Lake. It's called the Ishbatina Ridge, so it's the highest point in Ontario. Uh, it's uh, 693 meters above sea level. So if you're looking for the highest point, you want to go check it out. It's called Ishpatina Ridge in Lady Evelyn Smoothwater Park. It's a good hike up. It is a good hike. I've done it a couple times now. And uh, on that trip, we uh, took a float plane into Scarecrow Lake. We hiked the Ishpatina Ridge the next day, and then we canoed all the way down through Solace Provincial Park, down the Sturgeon River, and out again where we left the vehicle. So it was... Uh, it was a very nice trip, and your 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 Precambrian rock. It's uh, there's a lot of history there. It's it's a very nice area. It reminds me quite a bit of Algonquin Park, but it's a little bit more rugged and a little bit rocky. And you can see a lot of evidence of uh, of where they did all the smelting in Sudbury. So it killed a lot of trees, and it's yeah. acid stained a lot of rocks. So you can see a lot of leftover of that, and it's starting to recover now. It's uh, since they put in the super stack. What about 10, 12, 15 years ago? Once they put in the super stack, they they uh, they they do scrub the uh, the air more, but it just kind of spreads the acid out more, so it doesn't affect the local lakes. Yeah. And in a lot of these areas, you'll see funny colored lakes, and they call them Windex lakes. And these lakes, they look like Windex, the cleaner. 
and it's a dead lake. It's an acidified lake that has died, and there's no plant or uh, or fish or no water, life aquatic, no, no aquatic life. Yeah. And so most of these lakes are actually starting to recover now too because of the super stack. So they've really turned things around. But anyway, so uh, so there's the Lady Evelyn Smooth Water Park. You can you can travel down two different routes from there to get to the Sturgeon River, and so there's. Uh, through Solace Provincial Park on the west side of the area or the Obabaka River on the east side. And I've traveled both these routes. There's a lot of white water. It's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a really nice area. And these, this area that I'm talking about now, this is what is the precursor for me wanting to take my whitewater canoe trek trip that I, uh, or course that we talked about in a previous episode, last week's episode. So it's, I kept on getting into a lot of whitewater tripping on the Sturgeon River. So that's, it's like, oh, I better learn how to do what I'm doing here so I can, you know, keep myself safe. Anyways, uh, a lot of this area, there's still currently old growth forest. There's the, uh, the before they protected it and made it into parks, the logging had only made it part way up into this area. So now that it's protected, it's some of the oldest old growth forest in Ontario in this area. Well, you know, in the southern part of northern Ontario, there's still stuff that's, uh, it's mostly scrubland further, further north, but some of the old, uh, old big trees are still are now protected in this area. So there's the, uh, as I was saying, there's the Solace Provincial Park, the Obabaka River, and they all flow down into the Sturgeon River. And the Sturgeon River is, uh, it's a very, it's an it's a nice river. It's it's a long river. Let me see if I can find some of the information that I was supposed to say about it. But there's, what was it? There's a uh, 65 different uh, class one through three sections of the park. So it's a uh, the there's a few portages. They're mostly short. You get around some really hairy areas, and uh, depending on the time of year on the Sturgeon River. The, uh, the water level does drop significantly. And there's a few websites you can go to, the Government Canada websites, where you can see what the current water levels are, so you know the, the volume that's flowing. But uh, most of the portages are only about 50 to 250 meters long. And every, all these areas have their own, uh, have, have designated campsites. So anywhere in these areas, you have to have a permit to use. Lady Evelyn, you can't pre-book because they, they just don't take pre-booking because very few people actually go into the area. It's very desolate, and chances are you're, you'd be kind of fortunate to bump into somebody in these uh, back areas because it's just so few people go through the area. And uh, But, like, for the Sturgeon River, canoeing, it's, it's a canoeing mecca for northern Ontario. It's, like, where you want to go and see all your... Your whitewater tripping it's a it's a beautiful area and you can you can spend a, a week four days to a week on this river just running the different sections and finding your way down from lady evelyn all the way down to the base of sturgeon and there's a lot quite a few access areas where you can drive in to the sturgeon and run just certain sections of it but it for example the solace provincial park you either have to canoe into it or you have to take a float plane into it. You can't actually drive up to like Solace Lands Provincial Park. There's a few areas where you can drive into the Obabaca, but it's it's limited. Then there's a lot of backwoods roads and stuff. So you you want to have a decent four x four truck. You can't just drive in with a with a car. So anyways, so there's there's the main the main point of what I wanted to talk about was the Sturgeon River, but it, you know I wanted to hit the high points like the Ishtapatina Ridge. And uh, like for for all of these, the like I was saying earlier, the archaeological evidence dates back six thousand years, and especially the Obabaga River is where they found some of the oldest oldest areas and places. There, it looks like there's a newer history as well, prospector camps and there is and there is there's as well, and where and that's where logging and um, and trap lining and all that stuff came into play in in the last uh, 100, 150 years, right? So, but for the most part, th these are like thousands of year old roots and, and these roots are used summer and winter by the natives back in the day. But now it's, uh, it's just, there, there's still a lot of native use in the area. Yeah. But now it's just, there's a lot of, uh, vacationers and, and people running the white water in this, on the, uh, 
on the Sturgeon River. Well, you're looking at the, the map of the Sturgeon River and it's like, yeah, nonstop in, in sections. Yes, Just if you guys want to find proper maps, it, it, they say don't navigate by these maps, but they give you really good area what's in the area. If you go to ottertooth.com, so on Ottertooth, they uh, they have forums, they have all kinds of stuff for you to, to review to see what is in the area. So there's maps, there's stores, there's forums, they have lots of trip reports, and they have people talk about the whole area. So it's it's worth your time if you're into whitewater and i'm sure quite a few people that are into whitewater have already heard about these areas but if you want to investigate and you don't know about this area go to ottertooth.com check out the tomogamy area lady evelyn smooth water the uh the sturgeon river it's a beautiful area in northern ontario with uh with, with everything that you expect to find for backcountry and backwoods camping yeah, that whole Sturgeon River area really sounds interesting. It's a, it's a, it's my favorite destination location outside of Algonquin Park. I try to go back there every year. I love the area. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing some more destinations on uh, future shows. But until those future shows, you can check us out on the web at paddlingadventuresradio.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. So... Thank you for listening. I'm Sean Rowley. And I'm Derek Spest. We'll see you next time.